Hi, and welcome to The Liberated Life. My name's Jen, and I'm so happy you're here. This podcast was created from a desire for me to share my heart wholly and truthfully, to have conversations, tell stories, and most of all, to connect with you and discover alongside you. Tune in every single Monday to explore all things mind, body, and spirit. Get ready. It's going to be a wild, beautiful ride. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to The Liberated Life. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm so excited about this week's episode because I have my beautiful therapist on and I've like talked about you a little bit on the podcast, just about how much I love you and how much oh. I like value therapy. But um, so I want to introduce Jessica Karis Watterson. She is a licensed family or marriage and family therapist, a certified trim practitioner, certified crim practitioner, and a senior trainer for the Trauma Resource Institute. <laughs> Welcome to the Hi. Life. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> You totally deserve it. You're amazing. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, So how are you doing today? Let's just start with that. How are you feeling? I'm doing well. I actually, um, when you told me that you wanted to interview me, I got, I was a little nervous because there's just so much information um, about what you want to talk about today. So hopefully we can cover parts of it and then, you know, who knows, maybe we can have a a second yeah, recording, a follow-up, follow you know, down the road. I so think we're going to need one. If there's, also, sure. if there's more questions that need to be answered. Yeah. I mean, and there's, like, so much we can talk about under the scope of therapy. Yes. Um, yeah, I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on. Uh, okay, so my first question is, what made you want to get into this work, and what was your journey getting here? Ooh, that's a very good question. Okay. So... My mother is a, um, a licensed clinical social worker, and since the time I was little, she's been helping people. So I grew up, she was doing Lamaze classes in our garage, um, and she basically has been my biggest mentor. Um, she st- basically, let's see, I, if I were to say everything, um, she started um, a nonprofit called the Trauma Resource Institute in um, 2006. And that's when I was um, just graduating from college, and I was really kind of at a crossroads. I either wanted to be a nurse or a therapist. And um, she invited me to go with her to Nairobi, Kenya. To She was speaking at a conference for uh, female genital mutilation oh, wow. and the trauma effects. So I went with her as her assistant. And after going, I just saw how you could help people on a global level and just the work that she's doing, how powerful it is. And I just knew then that, okay, I want to be a therapist. So it was a long time coming. I think I tried to fight it, you know, because you want to do something different than your parents sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, I think this has been my destiny all along. So I decided to go to grad school and my undergraduate degree was in psychology too. So I always knew that, you know, the human mind and working with people and something that is something that I've always done since um, um, I've been a little kid. I'm, all my friends always came to me for help and I've always been that person and I've, I truly love doing this work. It um, it just makes me feel alive and it gives me a purpose too. So I love that. So how many, how many years have you been practicing as a therapist now? Oh gosh. Um, let's That's see. That's what you call it, right? Like practicing. practicing. Okay. So I've been in, I've been in private practice for about five years. Okay. I think now. Five years, yeah. And then before that, um, you have practicum when you're in grad school. And I worked at a psychiatric inpatient unit mm. at Alvarado Parkway Institute. Um, so that was definitely, um, I got to see everything in the DSM, which is the Diagnostical Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So I got to basically see everything. I got lots of experience there um, with diagnoses and do running groups. And then after that, I worked at a substance abuse and chronic pain um, facility I uh, was one of the main therapists there, and I also led groups, and um, yeah, and then here I am, now that in private practice. so cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know you did all that work. That's so, so amazing. Thanks. <sighs> <Yeah. laughs> 
um, okay, yeah, that's like a whole other That's a whole other podcast. thing, yes. That's a whole other thing, yeah. That's um, a, the short version of everything. <laughs> no, but I love it. That's so, so interesting. Okay, so the reason I have you here today is because I really want to get into trauma and what trauma is, and I know you know so much about this. Um, so let's start with this. How do you identify trauma? So trauma, that's like one of those big... Those big words, right? You hear it and there's so many different, um, I guess, perceptions of what trauma can be. And um, so the model I work with, with the trauma resiliency model, um, trauma is basically into three different categories. Like there's big T trauma, little T trauma, and cumulative trauma. And um, it's all about the perception, an individual's perception of an event. So um there can be something like a dental procedure that might be more under like the little t trauma, um, but it can be really traumatic to somebody. Or there can be something that's a big t trauma, like um, you witness the death of somebody or you're in a car accident, um, or there's cumulative trauma, and that's um, trauma that's happened over time. Um, could be racism. Um, it just, it could be um, neglect. Um, there's, so it's, uh, that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. So there's different categories of trauma, and I think the biggest thing is it's down to perception. And um, anything that happens, it's too much, too fast, that dysregulates the nervous system, or it's too little for too long. I see. So okay. you're not getting your needs met. So, and um, there's something else about trauma that is really interesting. Um, so from my mom's book, Building Resilience to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, by Elaine Miller Kers. <laughs> I just want to read a little piece here because I really love how she kind of explains it in her own words. So, trauma can be defined in many ways, but most importantly, it is an individual's perception of an event as threatening to oneself or others. An event that results in trauma for one person may not be experienced by another individual as traumatic. Even if every member of a family experiences the same event, each may have a different perspective regarding the event. Further, trauma doesn't have to be experienced firsthand. This is an important distinction because many people live in self-blame and self-criticism, wondering why they are having such a difficult time when they themselves did not experience the trauma. This vicarious trauma is experienced often by those in the helping professions, such as therapists, crisis counselors, firefighters, police officers, and medical professionals. So in this kind of, she talks about um, the, the large T um, cumulative trauma, and um, that's kind of what I just talked about. This is um, Dr. Francine Shapiro. She defines these two types of trauma. Um, and that's kind of what I just explained before that. She kind of goes into that. But um, I think right here I want to read more about cumulative trauma. So, or C trauma was added to our conceptualization after a world leader in humanitarian efforts and restorative justice shared with us the lingering impact of Colonialism on people on her home country, Kenya, in addition, others shared with microaggressions of homophobia and racism. And Native American colleagues explained the collective trauma of losing one's culture and language as a result of genocide. Cumulative trauma then can be used to describe racism, poverty, and homophobia. So that's kind of something that I think it's important to address, too, that are happening all around us constantly. Um, And then... Furthermore, symptoms of traumatic stress can occur immediately following a traumatic event, or it may be months or years before symptoms appear. Symptoms can wax and wane, plague people their entire lives, or they can disappear suddenly. So, um, and there's actually some statistics here. Do you yeah, want me you, to read if them? You read them? Yeah, go for I know it. we were talking about statistics before this started, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know I if we like have statistics. Love statistics. <laughs> they do love statistics. So, according to the World Health Organization. Traumatic events and loss are common in people's lives. In a WHO study of 21 countries, that's World Health Organization, (laughs) um, um, in 2013, there was more than 10% of respondents reported reported witnessing violence, 21.8% or experiencing interpersonal violence, 18.8%. Accidents, 17.7%. Exposure to war, 16.2% or vicarious trauma through a loved one, 12.5%. An estimated 3.6% of the world's population suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder in the previous year, the study showed. The world population, um, 
don't know if I can read that number. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's in a lot of us everywhere globally. Um, so approximately 260 million people are suffering from post-traumatic stress symptoms. Right now? Yes. Wow. Well, it's actually probably even more now because this was back in 2013. So imagine since then with all the events that have been happening yeah. with even terrorism, politically, other things that are, the microaggressions that are happening daily, what that number is at. And I think also um, people are, like, reporting it more now. Yeah. Like, I think more and more as people become aware. So, yeah, the, I, I feel like the numbers would have grown so much because people are being more vocal about it. And even just being aware that, like, oh, actually, there's something else going on here. Yeah. And it's more accepted now to talk about it. There's yeah. more outlets like podcasts and <laughs> <laughs> news outlets and um, freedom of speech. I think it's just people are getting more involved so. so what is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD? Okay, so I will give you, I will give you the exact definition of that. So um, basically, it's anyone can develop PTSD at any age. This includes war veterans as well as survivors of physical and sexual assault, abuse, car accidents, disasters, terror attacks, or other serious events. Not everyone with P PTSD has been through a dangerous event. Some experiences like the sudden or unexpected death of a loved one can also cause PTSD. So according to the National Center for PTSD, about seven or eight of every 100 people will experience PTSD at some point in their lives. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, women are more likely to develop PTSD than men. Some traumas may put an individual at a higher risk and biological factors like genes may take some people more, um, some people more likely to develop PTSD than others. So I think looking at symptoms too, a PTSD, um, if you're interested. Yeah, I, you wanted, I wanted to ask you, like, what does PTSD look like? How can you identify that? Yeah, okay, so, well, and something real fast too, I wanna say with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, we like to say, well, at least, you know, my mom and I, <laughs> we like to say post-traumatic stress injury because um, with this order, it can be so, um, there's such a stigma with disorder. Mm -hmm. like, they, like Marginalizing. Yeah, like there's no hope, like that things aren't going to get better. Mm -hmm. And I think with um, injury, it, it implies that you can heal, mm -hmm. that it can change, that you can get better, that there's hope. So, I love that. Yeah, I just That's wanted to awesome. add that. Yeah, no, I feel like, I mean, the language we use is so, so important. And I think if we can even, um, you know, use like injury and stuff disorder to give people a different perspective on their own uh, diseases, I think that's just huge for healing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And especially like with hope, because I think you can feel so hopeless, you know, when you've been living with these symptoms, which I'm going to tell you about right yeah. now too. So, you know, so symptoms usually begin within three months of the traumatic incident, but sometimes they can begin later. So for symptoms to be considered PTSD or injury, <laughs> they must last more than a month and be severe enough to interfere with functioning in relationships or work. The course of the illness varies from person to person. Some people recover within six months, while others have symptoms that last much longer. In some people, the conditions become chronic or ongoing. Um, so a doctor who, is, who has experience helping people with mental illness, such as psychiatrist, psychologist, or psychotherapist, can diagnose PTSD. So to be diagnosed, you must have at least one of the following. Um, Re-experiencing symptoms, avoidance symptoms, um, at least two arousal and reactivity symptoms, at least two cognition and mood symptoms. And you must re-experience symptoms. So you have flashbacks. You relive the trauma over and over, including physical symptoms like a racing heart or sweating, bad dreams, frightening thoughts. So you re-experience these symptoms. And it causes people harm in their everyday routine. Um, it can start with, start with just thoughts and move to feelings. Um, words, objects, or situations that are reminders of an event can also trigger re-experiencing symptoms. So avoidance symptoms, staying away from places, events, or objects that are reminders of the experience. Um, avoiding thoughts. So that's something that people, like, that's like, if, like, for example, if something happened to me at Disneyland and I just didn't want to go to Disneyland, that's kind of like an example of yes. avoidant, uh, avoidant symptoms. Exactly. Because there can, um, just even the thought um, of Disneyland can be just too much, too fast for your nervous system that causes you to be dysregulated okay. and to experience, you know, racing heartbeat, 
sweating. You could even have a panic attack. Um, so I think it's just even the thought. And also, even um, you could be walking down the street and a, a girl walks by you with Mickey Mouse ears. Mm. And that could be enough to trigger your amygdala to kind of say, woo, there's danger coming. Um, and, and you may um, not even realize that that was a trigger. Yeah. And it can just kind of happen unconsciously, too, because we're, we're basically wired for survival. Mm-hmm. So, and our, that's our brain doing its job. But sometimes it, could be, it can become overactive. Okay. And so we can see threats. Um, or there, our, our amygdala can see threats in environments where there, there aren't any, as so if you have PTSD. The amygdala is like the fight or flight center, like in the frontal cortex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's part of, it, you know, it's part of this, your survival brain. So it's, um, I'm not a, a neuropsychologist, but um, the, your amygdala, basically, it's a, it's, it stores highly emotional um, events that can be positive and, and negative. And it's, um, it's basically like the alarm system of the brain. And it, um, it, it's meant to keep you safe. And it's okay. meant for survival to say, okay, you need to either, um, like those Mickey Mouse ears, like what happened to you at Disneyland where, you know, you know the ride stopped and, you know, you almost died. Um, I don't know what happened at Disneyland, but... Um, it alar- it, the alarm system goes off, and it basically um, it puts your autom- autonomic nervous system into into um, into high alert. So, and it can activate your sympathetic system, mm-hmm. which is um, within your autonomic auton- nervous system. But your sympathetic system um, pre- it prepares you for fight or flight. Okay. So it um, you know it um, increases your heart rate. It prepares you for action. Um, your liver produces, yeah, your, your liver will produce more sugars to give you more energy to, you know, succeed with that, that fight or flight. And then the opposite is the parasympathetic branch, which Mm -hmm. prepares you for rest. And that's when you're like yawning and sleeping. Yeah, yawning. (laughs) And that's, that can be like your, your, you know, your body coming back into balance too. You know, after a fight or f- a fight or flight response has been activated, or your sympathetic arousal has happened in your nervous system, so. So I'm not sure. Sorry, I know. We're I just like jumped ahead. No, no, no. I just like I jumped ahead. To totally my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I see. There's like so much about, th- and there's like a whole other. Um, yeah, there's there's so much more about the brain that I'm probably just giving you a brief little tidbit. Oh yeah. Um, but just there's so much service. more, and there's um, there's actually I'm going to tell you a book. Yeah. If you're interested, yeah, of course. like, so there's, there's stuff about the neurobiology of the brain in the building resilience to trauma book, um, by Elaine Miller Karras, but also, you know, um, a leader in this type of field too is, um, Bessel van der Kolk. And he has a book called the body keeps the score, uh, brain, mind, and body and healing of trauma. That's a really good I've book to read. I've heard about yeah. this. I heard it's amazing. I'm going to include it in the show notes. So anyone, I'll provide a link or something to the Amazon uh, book so that you can all go buy it. <laughs> but he, he gets into the brain stuff, you know, the stuff yeah. that, um, yeah, the stuff that's kind of important to some people that um, explains a lot of our natural biological responses to threat So I, in okay, the brain. I don't know if you told me this or if I heard it somewhere else, but I heard that um, the reason that we are so kind of like relaxed and stuff when we drink alcohol is because it deactivates the amygdala. And oh. so we're able to kind of be, like, have our guard down and not be so afraid of things. Is that true? Have you heard of that? Am I making that up? Um, I haven't heard that um, that exact thing, but, I mean, it would make sense. Because um, I think when you drink alcohol, it's a depressant, and it um, it can impair your prefrontal functioning of your cortex mm-hmm. and kind of make you, I think it can make you be more calm. Okay. Maybe <laughs> I would guess, yeah. but I haven't heard that exact thing about the uh, about diffusing the amygdala. Okay. But um, well, I guess it would explain kind of like I mean we're totally getting off topic now, and I'll bring us right back. But I I was just gonna say I feel like that would kind of explain um you know why things like anxiety and depression or you know things like post traumatic stress injury lead to alcoholism some yeah. certain people because it's like then they don't have to feel that fear or that discomfort from their trauma. Well, we're talking about coping mechanisms, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, um, mm-hmm. I think we have to look at how we treat these, um, these injuries and it's people want to 
people that have post-traumatic stress injury or suffer from, you know, just severe anxiety, depression, I think it's natural to want to escape, to not feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we have to look at coping mechanisms that aren't healthy and ones that are. And I think alcohol is something that is fast. It's quick. You can get it anywhere if you're over 21 or even, you know, you can get it when you're under um, 21. Um, well, depending where you live. But I think it's something that's fast. But it actually ends up making people feel worse than the long run. Because mm -hmm. it is a depressant. So if you're feeling depressed, it's going to make you feel worse. Um, if you're feeling anxiety, it can actually make you feel more anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, it's only a temporary fix. Yeah, and it kind of amplifies what you're feeling, but at least it, like numbs you and takes you away from it your, takes you away yeah. so like what we so what we work with with like at the trauma resource institute with the the two models um the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model um the first sec six um skills of the community resiliency model are all about nervous system regulation and i think that's what drinking is for a lot of people they're trying to regulate their nervous system they're usually amped up because, you know, they're, they're feeling anxiety, their sympathetic system is on high alert, and they want something to access more of that parasympathetic system fast. Mm -hmm. So I think these um, the coping skills and the wellness skills that we teach in the community resiliency model helps people stabilize their nervous system and get back into their resilient zone. Um, and we talk a lot about um, the resilient zone is just a place where, you, you know, you feel like you can function. Um, at your best, that you can be angry, you can be sad, but you're not going to lose your your head. Mm. That you can manage what's thrown at you in life. I see. So it's kind of looking at healthier tools to get you there than mm. alcohol. Yeah, and those are so important. Okay, I'm going to let you get back to your yeah. list now. Sorry for the oh, yeah. interruption. Oh, for the rest of the um, symptoms? Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we, I think we were at avoidance symptoms. Yeah. I okay. Right at the beginning. Oh, no, but it was so interesting. This is what's <laughs> so fun about this. Um, we kind of... There's so much to talk about. Yeah. So, um, so we talked about the situations that can you can avoid. Um, so, and then arousal and reactivity symptoms. Um, you can be easily startled. So, you know, you might um, your senses might be heightened more more so than other people. So, you might um, if the doorbell rings, you might jump faster mm -hmm. than someone that hasn't that doesn't have post traumatic stress injury. Okay. Um, so, anything that's maybe like sudden or People are just more sensitive. Yeah, they're just more sensitive. Yeah, like it's kind of like your senses are heightened because you want to survive. Mm -hmm. You're kind of stuck in that survival mode. So feeling tense or on edge, having difficulty sleeping, and or having um, anger outbursts. Arousal symptoms are usually constant. So instead of being triggered by something that brings back memories of the traumatic event, um, they can make the person feel stressed and angry. These symptoms may make it hard to do daily tasks such as sleeping, eating, or concentrating. Um, so that's more about like when we talked about getting triggered by something mm -hmm. versus like it being constant. It's like you have to have a trigger for this to be activated. Mm -hmm. Like, so for some people, another example with, um, post-traumatic stress injury is, um, a war vet that, um, that actually is a trainer for the trauma, uh, resiliency model. He, um, he had, when he went, when he was in Iraq, he had experienced, um, the roadside explosive devices, um, and there was one that actually like, blew up towards his Humvee. And um, after that, whenever he was, when he came back to the States, whenever he was driving his car um, and he saw trash in the road, he got scared. Like, it triggered him. It would trigger his response. Even though he'd feel fine before getting in the car, there would be that trigger of the trash thinking that it could be an explosive device. So then he'd have to bring in the wellness skills to help him stay grounded so he could get through driving and stay in his resilient zone. Um, or even, like, the smell of gasoline. Um, things like that uh, smell basically goes through all of your, it goes straight to your <laughs> amygdala and it lets you know when there's threat. So things, so smells can be really, um, there's a lot connected to smell with I this. I can imagine that because, you know, even, okay, so like I'm, my family's from Ecuador. I'm a first generation American um, and I've been to Ecuador lots of times and, you know, I just have really, really beautiful memories of Ecuador and so many times when I'm like walking around I'll like, smell something and I'm like oh that smells like Ecuador and it'll make me feel good you know kind of make me yeah. like nostalgic and sometimes when I go on vacation I'll pick a I'll pick like or I'll go buy like a new body cream or a new perfume or something like that so that like I can be reminded and wear it on the vacation so that when I come back I can like be reminded of that vacation whenever I use that smell that's so I totally believe that like 
that works and can you sense like what's happening right now in your body as you even talk about the perfume and that scent and you're smiling I can tell (laughs) yeah so you can sense it Mm -hmm. so that's like that's what we work with with this model is um is that, that would be called resourcing thinking of memories or thinking of things that bring you pleasure or joy and then to connect to the sensation that happens in the body and you can bring resources anywhere so even though we're sitting right here, yeah. you know, you're, you you can draw that memory forward and um, you can sense into it. Mm-hmm. And even like going into the perfumes and you can even like act like you're smelling it and it can feel as though it's happening right now in this moment, mm-hmm. even though we're not in Ecuador. Yeah. So that's what's so powerful about resourcing. And it's uh, anyone can do resourcing. So if you're listening, you know, if you're going through a hard time, you know, that's one of our skills in the model is just think of anything that brings you pleasure or joy, whether mm-hmm. it's your favorite activity or um, a memory, or it can even be imagined, um, and to sense into it. And to really ask yourself details about that resource, too. Like if you have a pet that is your favorite pet, you know, mm-hmm. really like sensing into your pet's name and your favorite things to do together and, um, and connecting with that, because that can be just enough to bring you back to your zone or make it so that you're not going to leave your zone. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful too. So I'm, I I think I, you know, haven't really talked about my, my own trauma in full depth on the podcast yet and definitely not in this episode, but I, I have post-traumatic stress injury and it's something that I've been dealing with for like my entire life. Um, and something that I found really helpful just to kind of piggyback off what you're saying with resources is to have a list ready of your resources. Yeah. Um, so that like, because f- with my own experience and everyone's experience with trauma and mental health is different, but with me, I sometimes don't know, or a lot of the times I don't know when there's those triggers are coming or those dips in, in my mood affected by trauma are coming. And so it's nice to just have, uh, you know, like a list of resources, whether it's up in my house or on my phone or wherever to kind of, uh, so you don't have to think about it. Like it's yeah. work when you go to it. Well, that's like kind of like when we talk about like the, that's your toolbox or it's your, you know, you can go in there and take those those skills out wherever you are mm-hmm. and they're there. Because I think when you do go to those or when anybody in general goes to those low places, it's it's hard to think about like, well, what do I need to do next? Because you don't, the motivation goes. Mm-hmm. So just to have it right there on a piece of paper or in your phone, I think that's such, I mean, that's a, a, a wonderful thing to do and it can be helpful. Yeah, it's been so helpful to me. So, and I'm glad that you have that, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah. Was there another? Oh, yes, there is. So, cognition and mood symptoms. So, this is trouble remembering key features of the traumatic event. Um, Negative thoughts about oneself or the world. Distorted feelings like guilt or blame. Loss of interest in enjoyable activities. Um, Cognition and mood symptoms can begin or worsen after the traumatic event. These symptoms can make the person feel alienated or detached from friends or family members. So after a dangerous event, it's natural to have some of the symptoms mentioned on the previous pages that we talked about, but sometimes people have had very serious symptoms that go away after a few weeks. Um, This is called acute stress disorder, or ASD. When the symptoms last more than a month, seriously affect a person's ability to function, and are not due to substance use, medical illness, or anything except the event itself, the person might be experiencing um, PTSD. Some people with PTSD don't show any symptoms for weeks or months, so PTSD is often accompanied by depression, substance abuse, which we talked about with alcohol, um, or one or more um, anxiety disorders. And do you think that that can kind of come from shock from the trauma? Like, do you think that might be why there's like a delayed kind of response or awareness of the, of the yeah. post-traumatic stress. Yeah, I think um, it, it's not, it's, it's actually very common that I think, um, it's one o'clock. <laughs> oh <my> God, no. <laughs> I think memories can become fragmented when there is a trauma. Um, and that's again, because um, like our thinking brain sometimes goes offline and it's biological that our survival responses like just take over like, and we want our survival brain takes over and we mm-hmm. want to go. So sometimes we don't, um, we, c- we can get tunnel vision and not see the whole event. So when we start to heal, um, fragments, um, or like if time passes, fragments of the traumatic memories 
can start to come forward. That's why that can explain how some people might not remember abuse that's happened to them as a child, but then let's say they start going to therapy down the road and like 20 years, 20 years later even, and they start to remember things. Um, it's not uncommon. Okay. So, it's, yeah, it's the shock. So, and it's, um, yeah. Did I answer your question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then, um, so I want to talk real fast about um, children. Yes. So, um, children reacting differently than adults. So their symptoms might show up um, different. So uh, it's good to recognize this if you, if you have kids or you work with kids or you know kids that have been through trauma. So um, so children's and teens have extreme reactions to trauma, but their symptoms, they're not the same, and this is less than six years of age. So they can include wetting the bed after having um, learned to use the toilet, forgetting how or being unable to talk, acting out the scary event during playtime, um, being unusually clingy with a parent or other adult. Um, older children and teens usually show symptoms more like those seen in adults. They may also develop disruptive, dis disrespectful, and destructive behaviors. Older children and teens may feel guilty for not pre uh, preventing injury or deaths. They may also have thoughts of revenge. Um, so, and there's also um, all this information is, um, let's see, for helping children and adolescents cope with violence and disasters, it's www.nimh.nih.gov. You can get more information there. You are listening to The Liberated Life. I've really been diving deep into my daily morning meditation practice, and it's been so exciting seeing the effects of meditation and the effects it has on my mood, my sleep, and so much else throughout my day. But my daily meditation practice would not be the same without my crystals, my beloved crystals. This morning, I held my rose quartz palm stones in my hands as I sat, as I breathed, and as I observed my thoughts. And I felt the love from my beautiful crystals. Yesterday, I meditated with citrine on my solar plexus chakra. It's located above the belly button, in case you didn't know, and I totally soaked in all of that beautiful sun energy. What makes my crystals extra special is that they all come from my Etsy store, Lady Liberata, and they've all been handpicked by me. Visit my store to shop for crystals and handmade mala necklaces. You'll find and feel so much good juicy energy from these crystals and mala beads and feel even better for supporting a small business. Go to etsy.com forward slash Lady Liberata to take a look at what's in stock and maybe even adopt a new crystal friend. That's etsy.com forward slash Lady Liberata. Lady Liberata is spelled L-A-D-Y-L-I-B-E-R-A-T-A. That's all one word. See you there. And then something too is like, why do some people develop PTSD and other people do not? It kind of gets us to like the resilience piece too, so it's um, just it's important to remember that not everyone who lives through a dangerous event develops PTSD. So just because something traumatic happened to you doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get this injury. Um, most people can recover quickly without intervention, but others cannot. Uh, many factors play a part in whether a person will develop PTSD. Um, so some of these factors, they're called resilience factors. Um, they can help reduce the risk of developing the disorder or injury. <laughs> um, so some of these resi resilience factors um, oh, are present before <laughs> the trauma and others become important during and after the traumatic event. So risk factors for PTSD include living through dangerous events and traumas, getting hurt, seeing people hurt or killed, childhood trauma, feeling horror, helplessness, or extreme fear, having little or no social support after the event, dealing with extra stress after the event, such as loss of a loved one, pain and injury, or loss of a job or home, having a history of mental illness or substance abuse. Um, and then resilience factors um, that may reduce the risk of PTSD include seeking out support from other people, such as friends and family, finding a support group after a traumatic event, 
learning to feel good about one's own actions in the face of danger, having a coping strategy or way of getting through the bad event and learning from it, being able to act and respond effectively despite feeling fear. Um, and this kind of goes back into like if you can practice these wellness skills when, when, th when things happen to you, that if you can regulate your nervous system, sometimes it can help um, rebalance that natural um, ebb and flow of your, of your body. So what is resiliency? We're talking a lot, a lot mm. about res the trauma resiliency model, and um, you know I think it's like a, a big word right now too. You know, with millennials, and it's a big self help word, and you know yeah. everything. And and I know it's really important to your practice as well. So what does that look like? Resiliency. Well, it's it's just basically like for me, um, it's it's you know, life isn't easy. Um, things happen to us every day, and horrific things happen. I know good things also happen, um, but I think it's an ability to bounce back. It's an ability to not um, to not lose hope. It's an ability to maybe, if you are surrounded by darkness, to maybe just sense into that one little speck of light that might be left inside of you, and to see what happens. Because what we know um, is that what we pay attention to grows in our body. And if we, um, I always like to use the garden um, kind of metaphor. If, if you look at, um, if, you, if you only water the weeds, you know, water the things that are bad in your life, it's going to grow bigger. Mm -hmm. um, but if you start to water the flowers or like the little seeds and the other things, um, those can also grow. And it's kind of, we can kind of shift what we pay attention to and sense into that. And over time, that's resilience. That's how we change. And that's like the whole concept of um, neuroplasticity, too, that, you know, the brain can change, mm -hmm. that we can change. We can make new neuronal connections to wellness in our bodies. So, like, that's resilience for me. Um, I, I don't, I'm curious to what resilience is for you, too, because everybody may have a different definition. And I think it's yeah. good for maybe them to hear I, I really resonate with um, what you said about kind of like bouncing back from um, your trauma or what, you know, whatever discomfort you're having or whatever life event you've experienced that might cause trauma in your life. Um, I guess for me, resiliency in practice looks like having my tool belt prepared, setting myself up for success by taking care of myself. Um, going to therapy, exposing myself to good messages, and, you know, really taking care of my environment. Um, and overall, it's, it's really, to me, it's just a practice. It's something you build. It exists on a spectrum. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I'm not giving, like, that good of an answer. <laughs> I think it's a great answer. But, yeah, I guess resiliency also for me is, uh, you know, becoming aware, like awareness of, okay, what is this trigger? Where is it coming from? What is my ego telling me about this? What is my, uh, you know, inner critic or what is my inner best friend telling me about this? And so I, I really think a big piece of resiliency is um, being self-aware and th that too in itself is its own practice. Uh, but I think it really just, it starts with like us and our own work and over time we'll develop skills to eventually, um, you know, not be as emotionally uh, absorbed by things that trigger us. Yeah. Well, and it's about, that's about not being as emotionally absorbed by the triggers is also making new neuronal pathways to mm -hmm. wellness that it doesn't have to go straight to that trigger, that it can go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like working out. You yeah. know, the more you, you work a certain muscle, the bigger it gets. And, you know, the easier it is to, like, lift certain things that are heavy. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with, with resilience and wellness. You know, you have to work at it, and it is a constant practice. So, and I think that's huge. You know, it's um, nothing is easy, and I think it's um, you just have, and you have to have that awareness of what's going on and what you need. Because if you don't have that awareness, then it's hard to ask for what you need and it's hard to envision to what you need to do to feel better. Yeah. So So can you tell me a little bit more about the trauma resiliency model? I know we've yes. touched on it. I can. Um, so the trauma resiliency model is um, it's a set 
a set of nine skills. So the, the CRIM model, which is the community resiliency model, is six skills, and it's just the wellness skills. And that's for basically anybody that can learn those skills. The trauma resiliency model is for, it's designed for mental health pro, um, professionals. Um, and it's, um, there is uh, a trauma reprocessing piece to it too, which is the part that is for the mental health practitioners. But um, it's, the whole belief is that we can, um, through doing somatic-based therapy, we can um, learn to release that, that kind of stuck energy from the trauma. Okay, so just really quick, yeah. what is somatic-based therapy? Okay, so it's just basically working with the body, working with things that are happening that we're sensing. Like, so everybody has a feeling, right? I feel, I feel happy. Um, but what is, we're interested in what is that sensation connected to happy? And where does that live in your body? Mm. Right? So it's working with the body. Okay. And then um, a, a, one of like the a, a great pioneer too that I know that our our model that, um, that my mom was inspired by was um, Peter Levine, um, somatic experiencing uh, model, which also deals with like releasing that trapped energy from the body. Um, so yeah, it's just dealing with body, that it's mind like body connection. Pain manifesting itself in the body as physical. Yeah. And that we're all connected. It's like a mind body. Um, spirit connection everything's mm -hmm. connected <laughs> so you can't um, just talk about it to get yeah. over it you have to you have to sense it away mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah so totally. it's a whole different experience but i wanted to read some or not read but tell you something else about um so yeah i totally cut you off before like mid-sentence i'm so sorry but was was there anything that you wanted to like add to that sentence um so I think it's just more, it's it, like TRIM is, um, it's designed to teach wellness skills to clinicians working with children and adults experiencing traumatic stress reactions. So using a mind-body approach, um, it introduces a paradigm shift in the treatment of trauma um, where symptoms are treated as normal, like they're just normal biological responses rather than um, pathological or mental weakness. Okay. So... Um, in this way, um, TRIM can function as both a model for trauma reprocessing treatment as well as self-care. So it's both. Okay. Um, and then it's, it can be use, useful for in any setting, pretty much. <laughs> um, and it's, um, I love it. And it's, um, it's really changed what I do in my private practice. I use it with all of my clients, and it's at the foundation of everything that I do. So... It's an excellent model. I love it. It's it's really, really great because we can all apply it to ourselves. And I feel like we all, to some level, we all deal with trauma, right? So oh, yeah. Like we can all use that tool to help us. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's just giving the, you know, giving the psychoeducation about the resilient zone and, um, how we all have a resilient zone and some some people's resilient zones may be more narrow than others and others might have wider ones, but we can practice, you know, the working out mm -hmm. and your zone can become wider. So things that used to bump you out might not bump you out anymore. So, and I haven't talked about what happens when you get bumped high out of your zone or bumped low. So in our resilient zone, I've talked about that, but when, you, when a, a traumatic incident happens, or a trigger, um, you can get knocked above your zone where you're just out of your zone. You you no longer feel like you can manage, and you can have um, you can feel manic, anxiety, hypervigilant. Um, you know, you may have like some physiological symptoms also, like a rapid heartbeat, sweating, um, other things like that. Or you can be knocked low out of your zone where you feel depressed, numb. Um, you want to isolate. Um, so and then you can feel like a, a slowing down of time. Um, and just feeling disconnected. Chronic fatigue. Yeah, chronic fatigue. Isolation. Isolation. Yeah. So the whole point is um, when people have traumatic stress injury or, you know, if you go through things that are difficult, difficult in your life, you can get stuck outside of your resilient zone and people have no way to get back. Mm -hmm. So the goal of this model is to get people back into their zone faster so they don't, because, I mean, we're going to leave. It's life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can't manage that's like, there's nothing wrong with us. It's just how we're designed. So um, we want people to get back faster or we want to teach people how to recognize the things that are happening in their body um, symptom-wise so they can intercept that hijacking of the nervous system. So they can bring in a wellness skill like resourcing. Um, 
before they leave their zone. So maybe you can help regulate, regulate them just enough to stay there. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the, uh, the next skill, you know, it's tracking, resourcing, and then grounding is, is the third skill. And that's just paying attention to your body, making contact with the surface and just being present in the present moment. And like breathing kind of goes into into that as well, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, what we've noticed is, so with some, with some um, like I know, uh, with some interventions, they prescribe breath. Like take a deep breath mm-hmm. in, take a deep breath out. We don't do that. Um, we actually, what we found is that when people start to ground and resource, that they naturally start to breathe mm-hmm. deeper because mm-hmm. they get into that parasympathetic state. Um, so we might just pay attention to it and say, oh, just notice the breath that you just took. Mm-hmm. So we kind of take that half step behind. And, and it's a good way to pivot, like, your attention, too. Like, yeah. What are you focusing on now? Yeah. Like, or, yeah, what are you focusing on? What are you sensing? Um, so it's, um, we really, it's, we let the client guide us. Mm. So it's a lot, I think it's gentler. It's, um, we're not um, prescribing meaning to anything. We believe that every um, client has their own interpretation and meaning to what's going on with their life and their experiences. So it's kind of just to see what, it's amazing to see what comes forward when you start doing this work. That's really beautiful because I feel like, um, you know, you and like, you know, other therapists who uh, practice things similarly to you without that judgment, I I feel like you're really able to be our advocates, like for clients, you know, or for, I don't know if you call us clients or patients. I say, um, I like client. Clients. I like client. But I mean, some people say patient, but I like client. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, I've had therapists in the past who maybe, uh, you know, weren't really, I, wanna, I don't want to paint them as judgmental, but I've had therapists in the past who did have their own perspective, or maybe they were, I felt that they were trying to instill um, ideas in my head, or maybe shape my perception. Uh, and I found that that kind of just pissed me off and it didn't make me want to go to therapy and it made me think that like I'm never going to get find a good therapist but that's um yeah I think that's that's really helpful for for clients yeah well and like you can it's because I mean I think that's the worst feeling or one of the worst feelings is like when you're having you're going through something and um then it's kind of someone prescribes a meaning and it's totally off it can take you out of that whole experience when they're off you know, like, no, actually, that's not what I was feeling, yeah, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's, it's kind of, it's, it's beautiful to see what comes out of our clients through this work and doing the body-based work. Yeah. So, okay. That brings me to my next thing that I want to okay. ask you about. Um, so what should people look for in a therapist? Ooh. Like, you know, we have so many, you know, everyone says like, maybe you should talk to someone. Have you talked to someone? Maybe you should look for a therapist. But then it's like, where do I start? What do I look for? I think that's a really good question. Um, uh, I've, I've been asked that before, actually. Um, <laughs> surprisingly, no, I'm kidding. Um, so I think, again, it's, it's, uh, it depends on the individual. It depends um, what your individual needs are. Um, if you have a preference for gender, male, female, non-binary, um, gender non-conforming, um, whatever your preference is. Um, if you want somebody that's um, a certain age, um, a, a different, um, it, I think it just depends on what you want and what you're trying to treat. So um, like if you want to do trauma work, for instance, like it's good, I, I, I think it's good to go to somebody that either has like EMDR experience or they, they follow a somatic model, the, the trim model is really good great or somatic <laughs> experiencing um and I think that it's um those are important to integrate those pieces because again you can't I, I think for not for some things you can't just talk about it there has to be an integration of of the mind body and everything so again it's just looking for what you feel comfortable with I think that the place I would start is um look on psychologytoday.com or goodtherapy.org and you can scroll through people's profiles if you have a certain insurance company you type in your insurance on the search engine you type in um, kind of what you're looking for issue wise and then you have some profiles pop up and you can kind of look at people's pictures you can click their websites Um, I definitely recommend doing that and picking narrowing it down to three and you know calling them and seeing you know Mm. who 
is a good fit for you. And usually you can have like a 15 minute consult on the phone or some offer in session consults. Um, but I think you can get a pretty good feel right away for what, um, what you might need. And kind of, again, I want, I, I encourage people to listen to their intuition on that. Like if they get a weird feeling about somebody or if they doesn't feel right, like keep looking. Cause I mean, there's, there's lots of options. Um, and, and some, that's yeah, thing, like keep looking, keep don't looking. Give up. Yes, don't give up because I think the, I've heard that so many times where it's like there was a bad experience or, and then it's like, well, I don't want to do it. But I think it's don't give up, keep going. And I think you learn through, you learn what you want through going to a therapist sometimes that you don't really like their style, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. sometimes you don't know what you want until you've had what you don't want. Yeah. So I think it's, it's kind of like dating. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> like dating. So it's, it's just figuring it out that way. And it's, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard, it's if, especially if you live in a small town, there's like limited resources of therapists. Um, I think a lot of therapists in private practice sometimes get full too. So then it's like you have limited availability, but it's just about finding someone that has, you know, the right fit with you Mm -hmm. that fits your schedule. And, um, yeah. So yeah, you feel supported. You feel supported. Yeah. So I think it's, but again, it's, again, it's about, um, what works for me might not work for you. And, Mm -hmm. But start, start at looking through some profiles (laughs) and also ask around, ask around to, um, you know, if you have a psychiatrist or um, if you have a family doctor or if you have friends that have been to therapy, ask them who they went to and maybe get some numbers that way too. That's how I found you at, through Dr. Lowe, my psychiatrist. Oh, oh yes. Okay. That was awesome. <laughs> um, okay. And then, so we all know therapy can be really expensive. Yes. And a lot of people don't have insurance that covers therapy or maybe even their copay is still not really financially doable for them. So what are some things that people could do, um, some free things that people could do that could help with healing trauma or maybe, you know, not take the place of therapy, but um, be therapeutic for them in their healing? It's another really good question. Um, I'm full of them. <laughs> well, first of all, I think it's great that we, you are full of good questions that we have. Um, I think it's great that, you know, we have a mandate not to talk politics now that, that people have to have insurance. Cause I think that it is making it more accessible for some people to get therapy that couldn't get it before. Um, I know that even, um, like medical, you can get, um, there's really great therapists that are, and that you can see through them too. Um, I think there's, um, nonprofits in your area. Sometimes if you just Google, um, you know, reduce rate or reduce fee therapy. I think there's options out there that you can get help. Um, something that I, I have to recommend is, so for the, um, the community resiliency model, we have a free app that teaches people the wellness skills. And it's actually my mom's voice <laughs> walking people through, um, the, the, the six set of, sk- the six set of skills to, that you can actually access anywhere on your phone or from your computer or, um, to just access that to help you with regulation of your nervous system, and it's free. So I like that too. Um, but I think it um, it can be hard. But I think it's um, that's that's those are some options. That's awesome. I'll I'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, the, yeah, the app's pretty. I like the app, and you can track your resilience zone through it too to see where you are that day. Um, okay, so we have. I'm gonna have two questions left for you because I know we're kind of running out of time here. So sadly. Um, so how can someone help a loved one that has been traumatized? Cause I know, um, in, in my own experience, it's been really hard with like having a community at the same time, uh, as dealing with post-traumatic stress injury, because people tend to not know how to help. And then that makes them kind of just shy away because they'd rather not do anything than say the wrong thing. Um, so how can we help our loved ones who are dealing with trauma? I, that's another great question. Um, um, well, I, I think it's getting educated. It's doing your research. It's going online. It's, it's getting some good books going on Amazon. Um, and really I think loved ones, it's good for them to read about, you know, what does, what does this injury look like? What are symptoms of it? You know? Um, also maybe even, um, you know, asking them to, um, ask what it is that you need Mm -hmm. if you're the person that's going through it, you Mm -hmm. know, as I think, um, it can be hard, it can be hard to support loved ones, but I think to know that, that people can change, things can get better. You can heal 
to keep hope because I think sometimes it can feel like it's hopeless at, because there are those lows that happen. But I've seen it so many times where people get better and, you know, things turn around. And um, But I think just giving them the psychoeducation is so important. Mm-hmm. And just to, like, listen. Just be there. I think just be there. For me, something that I have wanted from my loved ones and that, you know, a lot of them haven't really been able to give me is just just be with me. Just, like, spend time with me. Just be there. Even if we're not doing anything or maybe we're watching a movie or just sitting at the park. I think just being there and, like you said, like, just asking for help. I mean, uh, sorry, asking for what they what they need. Um, Instead of judging. So I think there can be a judgment there and not understanding. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not understanding it can be scary where it can come off as maybe they can be passive-aggressive or resentful. Um but I think that quality time and just like no distractions and being together. Yeah. And I think something else too that I was thinking is like, um, you know, like for example, when someone passes away, like after my dad passed away when I was uh, 12 years old, so many people were over our house for like the first few weeks or something, you know, so many people bringing food and just being there with us. And I really appreciated that. But then it's just like one day everyone was gone. And we were all still, like, having this horrible time where we were grieving and we didn't really, you know, we were trying to make ends meet and we were still kind of, like, really struggling financially where we had to, like, go get food from, from our local church. And, um, and But it's like everyone just disappeared. So I, I feel like I just want to say that sh- keep showing up for your loved ones even after, like, months after the event. Like, it's important to be there for them when something shitty really happens. But, like, six months down the line, seven months, a year, still, you know, they're still going through that trauma, most likely, if it's been really, if it was a, a really impressive trauma. Um, so just keep following up with your friends, because they're still going through it. So be consistent. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think that's great. Oh, and real fast, too, I like what you said about church. I didn't add that for my reference of kind of getting reduced rate counseling. Sometimes some churches will um, pay for portions of therapy. I've, I've, um, I've had a couple clients um, from a church here in San Diego that um, the church paid for their therapy. So I think if you are involved with the church, um, they might have resources for you as well. Yeah, and depending on your like spiritual preferences, also just kind of be wary. Like I had a really bad experience with a church therapist that I was forced to go to. Oh. <laughs> Um, so just kind of, you know, depending on, you know, what your religion is or whatever, just uh, make sure you're getting what you need from that therapist, whether they're religious or not. And okay. you might need an outside referral if yeah. it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last thing. Is there anything that you would like to add um, about trauma or resiliency or post-traumatic stress injury? Just something that people should know. What do you want them to know? I think just going back to that piece of that we're all resilient, we're all designed to survive. We um, we just have to access, you know, that resilience and that there's hope that we can get better, that you're not alone. Um, if you're ever feeling alone, you know, reach out to somebody, um, try to get help. There's the suicide prevention hotline. Um, there's so many resources out there um, and just know that it's going to get better. And if you are feeling depressed and hopeless, that um, it's good sometimes to think about your, you know, the things that you haven't been able to do in your life that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like anything to help you through that moment, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that, you know, there's, there's help available and things will get better and things will change. And try not to lose hope. That's about it, I guess. That's amazing. Um, okay, so how can people get in touch with you? How can they work with you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, they can, so we, um, we offer trainings through the trauma resource com, and you can contact us through email that way. Um, I have a private practice in old town, um, and in San Diego. Diego. Um, so you can find me on psychology today that way. Um, and yeah, and that's how you can find me. Perfect. Just look my name up. Include (laughs) as much information as I can in the show notes as well. Jessica, thank you so, 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 so much for being on the show today. Like, you gave such amazing information, and I think it's so incredibly valuable. We need to talk about this stuff more. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to have you back on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been nice just sitting here and talking and just this is for a really good cause. And I love your show. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Have a good day or night. I will talk to you next week. Bye. I have a favor to ask you. If you liked this podcast, please rate and review it and share it with everyone that you love, everyone that you think maybe needs to listen to this today, or maybe they just need to hear from you and they want a text message from you saying, hey, go listen to this awesome podcast. Uh, Anyway, I'm so, so happy you listened in today and I will see you next week.